I am your host, the Doc Chad Matthews, lordsofpain.net. Wherever you may be listening, Doc says, Doc says... Uh. This is just what the doc ordered I'm saying welcome They sick of the other shows Chad here to help them The author of the mania era Is bringing terror on L.O.P. radio This is the prepare for the knowledge That he about to showcase Like a bar that you lift His opinions hold weight He wrote a few books And he's working on another for y'all This a five star podcast Chad let's get it on Author of the Wrestlemania era The book of sports entertainment And of the doctor's orders On lordsofpain.net On Doc says. Hello and welcome to the Doc Says here on LOP Radio. I am your host, the Doc Chad Matthews, author of the WrestleMania era book series and of the Doctor's Orders column on LordsOfPain.net. Wherever you may be listening, thank you for making me a part of your day. I solemnly swear that over the next half hour or so. I will not bore you with recycled opinions about the same gripes regarding the same wrestlers. Two weeks ago, on LOP Radio's All About All Elite podcast, Shane the LOP Mystic remarked that our society needed more places to celebrate the things in life that make us happy for longer than just the moments in which they take place. And I believe that's what this podcast should be. A place to celebrate what makes us happy about professional wrestling. And I hope it will help offset just a little bit the tendency for the world to brush off the positive things in life so that it can go on and on endlessly about the negative things. Next week, I'm going to lure Rich Latta away from the tall task of reviewing Raw and SmackDown long enough to shoot the half in the new Doc Says podcast for Sunday Wrestling Conversation. As for this week, I want to begin by debuting a new segment that I like to call simply... The five most interesting things on my mind about wrestling this week. So in no particular order. We'll start with number one. Positivity is in the air, ladies and gentlemen, and its power is palpable. A powerful and palpable positivity, you say? We must be talking about the New Day. You're damn right we are. The fast lane Kofi Kingston of the New Day. It's going to be challenging Daniel Bryan for the WWE title, continuing his rather improbable run to the top of the card after, at least in my opinion and by my estimation, doing nothing but serving up pancakes across the vast majority of the last physical year. Kingston lasted over an hour in the gauntlet match two weeks ago after being a late addition to the Elimination Chamber lineup. Then he had a great showing in the Chamber match itself on pay-per-view, which was one of the better Chamber matches that there has ever been. This is incredible, really, from the moment Kofi launched into a mid-gauntlet match verbal tirade on AJ Styles and the crowd lost it. I started championing putting Kofi opposite Bryan at WrestleMania, but given how random his push was, I was genuinely just happy and excited to see Kofi get a one-on-one title shot at all on a pay-per-view. At the same time, now that the Fastlane plan has changed from Bryan in a triple threat against old foes, to Brian versus Kofi, to now Brian versus a returning Kevin Owens, I think we can confidently say without hesitation that WWE failing to let Kofi Mania run wild on MetLife Stadium in April would have been another example of WWE being WWE in the modern age, failing to be adaptable enough to go with what's working rather than what they'd planned on. When it was Brian Kofi at Fastlane, 
I worried that they'd put a part-timer opposite Brian at Mania, and I'd have had two words for WWE that this Hall of Fame class headliners will surely echo two nights prior to Mania, if you catch my drift. When rumors turned to Brian Owens at Mania, I was a bit more intrigued because I'm itching to see KO in a babyface role. But let's be real, anything but Kofi versus Brian, at this point, I mean, it really seems it would have been a mistake. So a week ago, this is what I would have said. I think it would be amazing to see Kofi win the WWE title because I like what it would represent. It would represent greater top-level representation of the African-American community, and it would represent WWE doing something that they have seemingly forgotten how to do, strike while the iron is hot with a superstar that has the potential to move the needle. That said, I'm also all for the development of on-screen of a journey and letting that development build momentum to a logical crescendo. And I personally thought that we were going to see Brian remain WWE champion for quite a bit longer until the very obvious successor to his reign emerges. You know, was that going to be Kofi? You know, maybe. But a week ago, it seemed like you could very easily peg Fastlane and WrestleMania as the locations for a pair of challengers of the month for Daniel Bryan, you know, segueing the planet's champion into a program post-superstar shakeup that would likely have revealed a clearer choice to dethrone him. So all the representation-related stuff, I think, is still true now. But with the turn of events on SmackDown last Tuesday, the stage is set for the journey of Kofi Kingston to culminate at WrestleMania, should creative prove capable of maximizing the pre-mania experience of that. They're off to a good start. Marginalizing him presses an emotional hot button in today's society, and I, for one, love that they're playing that creative card because it is that kind of meta story reinforcing the journeyman pro wrestler arc that takes an intriguing road to ultimate victory in the modern age of pro wrestling storytelling and makes it a deeply resonant one. The way they're handling it you get Kevin Owens slowly transitioning to a babyface role rather than just up and becoming one because he returned from an injury. You get Kofi potentially reaching his career peak with a WWE title win at WrestleMania, something I still value as the penultimate goal in pro wrestling today, second only to main eventing WrestleMania. And you get a psychologically gripping narrative that strikes emotional chords with a freaking sledgehammer. So a week ago, I would have been satisfied with Kofi getting a chance, having a WWE title match at all on pay-per-view. Right now, I'll say instead that Kofi will never be better positioned to win the big one than he is presently. Timing is so important sometimes when it comes to maximizing success, and the timing is right for Kofi, and by extension the New Day, to break free from the shackles of their stale act and from the confines of WWE's creative ineptness toward evolving their personas to become more relevant than he's ever been and to cash in on the New Day's wildly successful run as a comedy trio. I look forward to exploring whether or not this is going to be a case of right time for New Day and Kofi, right time for the world we live in, but wrong time as usual for WWE brass, or if WWE strikes while the iron is hot and takes the kind of philosophical step forward in the modern era that I've really been hoping for a few years 
that they'd take more consistently. I love the message Kofi winning the title, or even being in the title match at Mania, frankly, would send to the world, but especially him winning, that if you trust the very power of positivity that brought Kofi in the New Day to the dance in the first place, then it will lead to bigger and better things in the future. You know, look at the women's tag team championship division that has emerged over the past couple of weeks. That's certainly been on my mind this week. I I didn't mention them last week when I briefly acknowledged that Elimination Chamber had happened because, honestly, while I think it's a huge deal that the women have tag team titles to fight for, I wasn't overly enamored with the inaugural champs being crowned as they were. But nevertheless, I mean, it's certainly a big deal that this possibility that it sat there on the periphery for quite a while and apparently you know the girls backstage were really pushing for this and championing the effort for it it eventually happened so I think if you put something out there long enough good things happen regardless of the obstacles that may stand in its way so we can look at that as it pertains to Kofi but let's talk about those tag titles for a minute I love the idea of the tag team division for the women Because roster positioning-wise, the women who aren't vying for the singles title basically just fall off the face of the earth creatively. That has been the case for years. Uh, That has not been a trend that's changed all that much in the evolution, revolution era, so to speak. I mean, you look at Asuka. Her bid to become champion ended, and she practically disappeared for eight months before randomly returning to prominence to win the gold. So there's this creative stopgap that's been put in place where if you're not vying for the championship then you're you're just kind of written off you just you know it's it's just nothing's there for you to do this gives them something to do now hypothetically I think the tag team division would clearly give someone in Asuka's situation last year for instance or a comparable situation somewhere to go and something to do that would help prevent the we've got nothing for you type thing or random filler matches that are not presented as having definable stakes. But right now, it's all hypothetical. The key is going to be what WWE does with it. In classic classic sort of modern WWE fashion, the women's tag titles were presented and now they've got to build a division rather than building a division and then presenting the titles. The Elimination Chamber was a sexy choice to crown the title holders, but it was not a particularly practical one. I'll give you an hour to come up with the last classic tag team match from the women's division, and spoiler alert, you'll likely need more than an hour. I think a tournament would have been a far better way to produce this whole thing because it would have allowed them to build a division while crowning the champs. But alas, here we are. Now it's time to build the division or the belts won't mean anything to the product anyway. That statement wasn't intended, mind you, to diminish the achievement of merely getting tag titles for the women's division. It is, as mentioned before, it's a huge deal. It's a huge achievement. And you could tell how much it meant to Sasha and Bailey to be the pioneers after apparently spearheading the effort to make the titles a reality. But now that the hard work backstage is over, the hard work on camera begins. Bailey and Sasha, I think, are the right choice to bear the torch and walk the fledgling division to the precipice of greatness. But how well the storylines play out and how engaging the matches will be, that's the key moving forward. So I'm personally 
in wait and see mode accordingly because we've not seen any of this in 30 years. The Bomb Angels and the Glamour Girls tore the house down at the 88 Rumble. Show me that that can be done consistently and don't drop the ball like the ball has been dropped repeatedly as it was as is the case with the men's tag titles. Very little trust trust exists right now for yours truly when it comes to WWE and tag team wrestling. In fact, when it comes to a lot of the little things, my stance on that in the last five months hasn't changed, only my attitude toward it. So, you know, therefore, you've got, you know, go, go Sasha, go. You go Bailey, go. Crush it in all of your initial title matches and build the reputations of those championships while you're at it. I'm going to be sitting back with low expectations while having high hopes. A couple of things I'd like to see in the division. I'd like to see Nia Jax paired with someone who can work. Natty paired with someone who she can take under her wing. I'd like to see the continued team efforts from Naomi and Carmella. And consistent opportunities for the likes of DeVille and Rose, the Iconics and the Riot Squad, to emerge as the dangerous threats for who eventually dethrones the current champions. Personally, I'm very curious about the WrestleMania direction. I can see WWE viewing it as a golden opportunity to put the spotlight on a part-time tandem opposite the boss and hug connection, like Lita and Trish. I think that's been rumored, or the Bellas, which would never be surprising. Currently, I don't know how I feel about that, given that so little creative focus has been given to Asuka since she tapped out the most overact in the entire business. It's like, okay... This is what I'm talking about when I talk about part-timers and the problem they have. It's not just about their presence on the card. It's about the creative focus that goes to them instead of their contemporaries uh, or their the contemporary peers. You know, you've got someone like Asuka who she could use that creative focus that they will likely give to the Bellas or Lita and Trish if they come in. I'm still on my part-timers can do the... You know, echoing what I said earlier about the Hall of Fame class headliners. Uh, you know, I'm still on my kick about what they can go do. Um, I got two words for them. So, I mean, we'll see how it goes with this process of the developing tag team division. But generally speaking, I'm pretty pumped about the prospects of its possibilities. Roman Reigns came back to Monday Night Raw this week. I'll get to my thoughts on his announcement in just a moment, but I want to backtrack my train of thought on the matter. Obviously, his battle with leukemia and how healthy he can return to being is the top priority in the bigger life picture. But for wrestling fans who care about the entertainment that they get out of a wrestling product, are we not justified in being a little timid about his character coming back to TV? Say what you will about WWE's product in the past few months But one thing it has felt is far more fresh and wide open at the top in terms of opportunities. Even with Lesnar being around, you've had guys like Balor rising to the forefront, Seth Rollins winning the Royal Rumble. It's just felt different to me. And some of that is, of course, taking a step back from the product, but it feels that way nevertheless. Unlike the last few years, as we've gotten into this time of year, We haven't had the clear and obvious Roman Reigns direction lording over WrestleMania season like a soul-sucking black hole. I hate to say it, and I feel like I'm probably going to regret these words as soon as they leave my mouth, 
But when I saw Vince McMahon's announcement last week that Roman would be on Raw, immediately my mind went to his potential impact on WrestleMania 35. I took some solace in my stance being a bit on the controversial side because, you know, I would assume that a live Raw update about his health and subsequent Good Morning America appearance told me everything I needed to know about his condition. Him actually saying he was in remission was just, at that point, a confirmation. It's not like they'd advertise Roman's Raw return and appearance on GMA so that he could walk out and say, everyone, I'm sorry, y'all, but I'm not going to make it. Because that would have been incredibly poor. That would have been in incredibly poor taste. And the opposite of what Vince's hashtag classy endnote to his Twitter message insinuated. So there's a strange trend right now, and I'm going to talk about this in a few minutes, of wrestling fans hating on other wrestling fans. And of course, the response to any and all who had anything to say on social media about Roman, uh, you know, what his impact would be on the product. And, you know, the people who were calling it a work and all that crap, I mean, that's that's kind of a different story. But, you know, the the people out there who had some quite, in my opinion, quite logical sort of trepidation about the whole thing, you know, you know, I had that same trepidation about him coming back, the character coming back, granted, during a period where one of the few positives in WWE was a fresh atmosphere full of opportunity. These people who had the guts to say that stuff on social media were lambasted for it, for being jerks. Folks, can we stop pretending that the world is so black and white? You know, you can feel great for the man's health and simultaneously feel nervous about the character's impact, and that's 100% okay. It is okay, and it's okay because Roman Reigns is a humongous part of our WWE experience right now. So nothing but love and encouragement to Joe Anawaii and his family. Hopefully I said that right. But if I'm being brutally honest, as a fan of a wrestling product... I was in no rush to see the return of the most poorly pushed, inauthentic, top-level persona in the history of WWE. So I was. I was a little nervous about it, I'm not going to lie. When he announced his departure back in October, I openly pondered if it would be the one thing that might turn him legitimately babyface with a huge part of the crowd. But it's been only four months. Four months. And I was genuinely curious when he came out on Raw to see if the, if the return would be met with the kind of positive enthusiasm that I figured it might when he kicked leukemia's ass and came back. So fortunately, he is okay, and the crowd responded enthusiastically to his return. It was a genuine feel-good moment, and the Shield got a little bit more action in as a unit before Ambrose presumably still leaves in April. I presume we're going to see the Shield against McIntyre, Lashley, and Corbin. And then we'll see what happens for Roman thereafter. But I'll tell you what I would do if I had the book. I'd go with what the original plan was for Reigns at WrestleMania 35 against Dean Ambrose. Those two have never worked a program, though they did main event Survivor Series 2015 as tournament finalists. I don't really want Roman anywhere near Seth's story because it's Seth's story now with Brock. I do really want to see Roman get the chance to work with a contemporary at WrestleMania, and instead of a part-timer who doesn't have anything left in the tank. So I'd have Dean turn on Roman hard at Fastlane and let those two have fun together for the next eight weeks before Ambrose exits stage left. 
So we'll see how the Roman story progresses, but absolutely it's a great thing to have uh, to have him overcome what he has overcome. There was never any guarantee, as I mentioned on Twitter right after he announced that he was in remission, there was never any guarantee that he could come back. It really wasn't. It's It was as likely that he never came back as it was that he came back and could return to the ring. So uh, good on Roman. Now we need to turn our attention back to uh, back to the character and what it means for the product because that's what we're fans of. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Chad Matthews, and welcome back to the first annual March Mayhem Tournament to determine the best wrestler in the entire world. The action was fast and furious through most of round one, so let's get to the results and set the stage for the round of 32. In the cleaner regional, top-seeded Kenny Omega advanced swiftly but excitedly past Roderick Strong in a thrilling 10-minute encounter and will face in the next round Mustafa Ali, who defeated Jay Lethal in one of the most hotly contested opening round contests in just shy of 15 minutes with the 0-5-4. What a thrilling showcase Ali vs. Omega should indeed be. Adam Cole had a little help from his friends as the Undisputed Era made their presence felt in his 11-minute victory over Rey Mysterio. Awaiting him next is Andrade, who scored the 12-5 upset over Hiromo Takahashi in a highly impressive, visually stimulating 13-and-a-half-minute affair. So it'll be Cole versus Andrade and Omega versus Ali to set up one half of the Sweet 16 matches in the cleaner regional. Joining them will be Will Ospreay, Roman Reigns, Finn Balor, and Pentagon Jr. Reigns and Kushida was as back and forth as back and forth gets, but the resurgent big dog is out to prove he's a better wrestler than his seating suggested. Ospreay over Drew McIntyre was a closely fought match with a thrilling finish as both took off in opposite directions to build momentum for their finishers, but McIntyre could not pull the trigger on the Claymore kick before eating a springboard stunner. Pentagon rather easily defeated Marty the Moth in six minutes, and Ballard ducked a black mass attempt, connected with a sling blade, and dropped black with the coup de gras. Osprey versus Reigns is set to thrill in the second round, and if Roman's ring rust was tested against Kushida, it will be pushed to its definition against Osprey. Meanwhile, Pentagon Jr. looks to continue his dominant run to the Sweet 16 in a huge matchup against Finn Balor. Looking across the way to the Johnny Wrestling Regional, number one seeded Gargano struck quickly against Matt Taven, advancing to the next round in just over eight minutes with a slingshot spear out of nowhere. It'll be the Battle of the Johnnies in the round of 32, as the Impact World Champion defeated Shinsuke Nakamura in a 10-minute match, setting up one of the most intriguing second-round battles on paper. Impact versus Gargano should be awesome. Cody, the fourth seed, advanced over Phoenix, who went out in a blaze of almost glory, scoring five false finishes on the co-AEW founder in quick succession before falling victim to a well-timed disaster kick and the crossroads. Cody will face Tomohiro Ishii, who physically overwhelmed a game Sammy Callahan in round one. Ishii threatens to do the same to Cody. Ricochet, a winner over L.A. Park, will face a similar test as Cody in round two, as he'll be facing Walter, whose power overwhelmed Jeff Cobb. Setting up perhaps the most fascinating second-round matchup was the Velveteen Dream and Hiroshi Tanahashi's victories over Dolph Ziggler and Keith Lee, respectively. 
Both opponents were tenacious outs in the round of 64, but the recent past and the future will collide beyond the scope of promotional ties when the ace of New Japan faces arguably WWE's hottest future prospect. While there were no major upsets in the first round of the Johnny Wrestling bracket, upset potential abounds in the four pairings of round two, with Walter and Velveteen Dream particularly primed to create chaos. Staying on that side of the bracket, reigning NXT champion Tommaso Ciampa routed Bandito in a six-minute pseudo-squash, asserting loudly and proudly his pre-match position that he was the most unheralded one-seed of the tournament. He will face Buddy Murphy in round two, after the current WWE Cruiserweight champion impressively defeated NWA champion Nick Aldis in one of the most unpredictable matches of the opening round in a shade over 17 minutes. Murphy and Ciampa represent their respective WWE brands well, and there should be little doubt that Murphy will not go quietly into that good night next week. One of the major stories of the tournament's first round occurred in the next foursome. Chris Jericho, outraged over his recent Wrestle Kingdom loss to Tetsuya Naito, was anything but tranquilo when he entered the ring, distracted the ref, and tossed Jordan Devlin a pair of brass knuckles that swung the huge upset over Naito. The 13th-seeded NXT UK star scored the tournament's biggest upset thus far. Jericho, underseeded to many but properly to others based on his limited resume in 2018, seemed to have scored the pinfall in 14 minutes over Austin Aries with a roll-up, but Naito returned the disfavor, distracted the ref from making the pin, and gave Aries the chance to reverse the roll-up in his favor to get the win. Naito and Jericho brawled their way to the back, while Ares smirked in the middle of the ring. It will be Devlin versus Ares in the round of 32. Zack Sabre Jr. narrowly avoided another upset special against the 14th seed with top 3 seed potential in Braun Strowman. The monster truly struggled to keep the crafty Brit off of his increasingly weakened limbs, but ZSJ also mightily struggled to avoid getting swatted like a fly on numerous occasions. The end result was another in the series of several nifty pinning combinations, with Sabre wrapping up Strowman's extremities like an octopus. Other round one winners from the Blackheart Regional included Cedric Alexander upsetting The Miz, Seth Rollins over Matt Jackson, and Matt Riddle over Cage, setting up Alexander vs. ZSJ and Rollins vs. Riddle in round two. Across the bracket to the Rainmaker Regional, number one seed Kazuchika Okada was nearly upset in an awesome match against Liverpool's number one Zach Gibson. It took two Rainmaker clotheslines with a rather limp, Shankly Gates abused right arm to get the job done in 21 minutes. New IWGP heavyweight champ Jay White defeated Rusev in 12 minutes, setting up an Okada-White rematch in round two. Pete Dunne, the fourth seed, and Daniel Bryan, the fifth seed, won their matches against Joey Janela and Hangman Page via submission to earn the right to face each other in a huge second rounder. A bit further down the regional, Kota Ibushi scored an eight-minute pinfall victory over Nick Jackson of the Young Bucks and will face Samoa Joe in round two. Joe went to war with Minoru Suzuki across 25 grueling minutes of brutal fighting, and it will be interesting to see what he has left next week for one of the best wrestlers in the world today. The villain, Marty Skrull, won a nine-minute contest against Juice Robinson, but the talk of his foursome was by seeding the biggest upset of the tournament. The third-seeded AJ Styles was foiled in round one against the first-ever WWE United Kingdom champion, Tyler Bate. A veteran of tournaments, 
winner of the UK title tourney in 2017, finalist in the recent Worlds Collide tournament over Royal Rumble weekend, Bate was rather flippantly disregarded by Styles, who was interviewed pre-match about the prospects of potentially facing Kota Ibushi in the Sweet 16, or Daniel Bryan, Pete Dunne, or Kazuchika Okada in the Elite Eight. Full of confidence, he promised to represent his legacy in the Final Four. But as the longest match of the opening round drug on, Styles continually struggled to grapple with the speed and strength combination brought to the table by the Englishman. At just over 31 minutes, AJ set up for the Styles clash, but Bate flipped him forward using his leg strength. AJ tried to hang on, but Bate got him up instead for the Tyler driver for the shocking three count. Will Bate's Cinderella run continue into the Sweet 16? We'll find out next week. So that'll do it for round one, which saw seven upsets, including a 12 seed, an 11 seed, a 13 seed, and a 14 seed advance beyond favored competitors. Check out the updated brackets posted later today on Twitter and keep your votes coming as a combination of your voting, booking, and simulating will determine the ultimate victor. Thanks for tuning in to this March Mayhem update. Now let's get back to the other most interesting things this week from The Doc Says. Let's talk about AEW's Double or Nothing card, which is taking shape already despite being three months out from its air date. The main event will be a Wrestle Kingdom 12 rematch between Chris Jericho and Kenny Omega, and I'm digging the hype for for it so far, with Jericho playing this I'm a huge star and you guys couldn't have done this without me character, leaning hard into his overinflated sense of historical relevance. I really liked their match in early 2018, and I think that Having been Jericho's first feature-length bout in ages, and the improvement he's made since finding himself in the ring over the past year, you know, the finding himself as a 48-year-old guy or whatever the hell he is, the rematch should be even better. I don't think there's anyone in the world better given 20 to 30 minutes to work than Kenny Omega, so I'll be curious to see what his character will be in the months leading up to the match. Does he play it safe as the best bout machine opposite Jericho's ego-maniacal legend shtick, or will he dig a little bit deeper? If he finds something more engaging to tap into with his own character, Double or Nothing's main event could become one of the most anticipated of the year. But anticipation as it is right now, I think for yours truly anyways, actually greater for the tag team match that has Show Stealer written all over it between the Lucha Bros, Pentagon, Jr., and Phoenix, and the Young Bucks. It's intriguing to me, not just because I'm a big fan of the Lucha Bros from Lucha Underground, but because I've actually never seen the Young Bucks wrestle before. For all intents, it would seem they are regarded as the best tag team in the game. And I'm rather excited to see all their, their sort of all-out style, if you will, that I've read so much about, opposite two incredibly talented luchadors. Personally, I don't really need a lot of storyline to enjoy tag team wrestling, My expectation of tag wrestling is for the wrestlers to tell me a story when the bell rings because the storyline that sold me on watching the event usually came from elsewhere on the card. I want winning to be the major focus, if not the sole focus, in tag team wrestling. So perhaps naming this a tag title match will raise the stakes and allow it to be an exhibition in tag team artistry. That said, Pentagon carries an aura of danger wherever he goes and brings so much character to everything he does that I've seen, 
So I think that this tag team match will offer a bit of something for everyone and should be a classic, especially given how hot the crowd ought to be. There's a three-way women's match on deck for this card as well between three women I really know nothing about, so I'll comment on that match down the road once I learn something about them. And then there's a few matches still taking shape, announced but incomplete, and we don't know what Cody is doing. The only other announced match, confirmed full match, is Pac versus Hangman Page. The, the former Neville is a favorite of mine. I mean, I love that guy. His attitude, his athleticism, his underrated ability to marry those elements together with his in-ring game. I'm really pumped about this match. Page is another unknown for me, though I've heard good things. In this day and age, I can be sold on reputation alone. I trust my fellow wrestling fans on what constitutes great wrestling from great wrestlers. Remembering, of course, that I have written two books on shunning this ridiculous notion that pro wrestling greatness is subjective. No, it's not. It's reasonably objectifiable, and if something or someone gets labeled great, then it should be pretty obvious to the objectively subjective viewer. Short aside, well, aside, I think Double or Nothing is shaping up to be memorable for a lot of reasons, and its card is absolutely one of those reasons. I think one of the most fascinating narratives to have emerged this decade is wrestling fans hating on other wrestling fans, and that's where I'd like to close today. Like, we don't get enough hate collectively from people who don't understand or care to understand our appreciation for pro wrestling. Now we hate on each other all the time, too. Look, do fans complain too much? Yeah, of course, at least about WWE. But everyone complains too much about everything. That's our culture, and that doesn't make it right, but it also shouldn't be viewed as the reason why WWE isn't putting its best foot forward, you know? Does it help to essentially suggest that wrestling fans are idiots that just want to complain all the time? No, nobody wants to complain all the time, or such is my belief, but I do believe that people are conditioned to do that. To call them stupid or to suggest that they have an inner desire to be unhappy is the equivalent of chastising a patient with multiple sclerosis for feeling bad or a depressed person for feeling melancholy. Those feelings be they associated with a health condition or a negative attitude towards something like pro wrestling, are symptoms of a problem. As WWE fans, things like Daniel Bryan's run to Mania 30 was a steroid injection, band-aiding the symptom that was caused by years of such things as hiring meatheads from the gym and trying to teach them to wrestle instead of hiring the best pro wrestlers from beyond WWE's walls, creatively stifling generation after generation of emerging talent, having a brand split but always heavily favoring one brand over another, deprioritizing the tag team and mid-card title divisions to the point that they were practically unrecognizable when compared to the equivalent divisions of the boom periods, failing to capitalize on the quieter evolution of women's wrestling that peaked with Trish Stratus, Lita, and Mickie James, actually planning on Orton versus Batista as the main event of Mania 30, with Brian left out in the creative cold to wrestle Sheamus, anointing Roman Reigns as the conquering hero, despite a very vocal and deceptively large part of the fan base never having found him to be heroic, staying married to the idea that looking larger than life, looking larger than life, was a primary prerequisite to actually being larger than life, extending the Hall of Fame ceremony to the most of the WrestleMania card, putting the WWE title on a guy who hadn't won a match in eight months because he was from a place they wanted to build a financial relationship, etc., 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 etc. 
Some fandoms decline more rapidly than others. But eventually, any diehard wrestling fan will be worn down by WWE's creative Tasmanian devil routine, and though their desire to remain a fanatic is often greater than their desire to leave an increasingly bad situation, their negativity is a symptom of their dissatisfaction. Their fandoms are sick and throwing them a creative bone here and there and expecting them to get well makes no more sense than throwing a diabetic some insulin. It doesn't change the fact that their bodies are breaking down inside. So be mindful of that, please. I've been the guy labeling fellow fans as jaded, which was my quieter way of taking a jab at the folks who didn't like anything. Those people should really stop watching WWE and find something positive, I believe that. I've been the guy who started to become jaded, with a genuine appreciation still for what WWE did right, and an attitude toward their shortcomings comparable to a fan of a sports team that was entertaining in all their mediocrity at best. And it's no fun, nor does it help, to be called a whiner when all you really want is for your team to optimally succeed, to maximize what it's capable of. Remember that the next time you go on a Twitter rant about fan stupidity, and I will too. To paraphrase Tupac, let's change the way we watch WWE. Let's change the way we speak about WWE, and let's change the way that we treat each other. Granted, some things will never change, and that's just the way it is. But let's try to be better. Last but not least, before I sign off, please check out the rest of our lineup on LOP Radio. In my humble opinion, no podcast network offers better variety or more diversity in topics. On Mondays, talking about professional wrestling from the tip-top companies to lesser-known entities, it's Kingdom of Honor, hosted by LOP Hall of Famer Zanman. Tuesdays, the lesser-known pro wrestling organizations get the full spotlight as Jeff and Miz Fan host the Global Revolution. Available on Wednesday mornings, check out our weekly Raw and SmackDown reviews on One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. Then Wednesday afternoons, check out Samuel Plan's unique performance art take on the product with Sports Entertainment is Dead. Thursday, The Implications keeps the British flavor going with his weekly takes on the Perfect 10 Wrestling Podcast. Friday, it's LOPR's longest-running program, the one that has been here since day one and has kept on trucking for over a half-decade and counting, The Right Side of the Pond, hosted by Plan, Maverick, and Mazza. Saturday, the brilliant podcasters that brought you WCW The Legacy Series, Shane and Mizfan, are now all about All Elite. Then Sunday, you can catch my show, The Doc Says, in the mornings. Thanks again for listening, and have an awesome week, LOP Radio Heads. This is just what the doc ordered. I'm saying welcome. They sick of the other shows. Chad here to help them. The author of the mania era is bringing terror on LOP Radio. This is to prepare for the knowledge that he about to showcase. Like a bar that you lift, his opinions hold weight. He wrote a few books, and he's working on another for y'all. This is a five-star podcast. Chad, let's get it on. Author of the WrestleMania era, the book of sports entertainment.